Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller, and on the show, Amsterdam. Hello. Got a dead white man in a box. Not even a casket. Doesn't even have a top on it. In a pine box of old wood. Who do you think's gonna get in trouble here? Do me a favor. Try to be optimistic. You don't get here without things starting a long time ago. So, two soldiers and a nurse found ourselves in... Amsterdam. We formed a pact and we swore to protect each other, no matter what. Tax the rich. We find ourselves in a situation where we're accused of killing someone, which is not true. You and Woodman fled the scene. The killer pointed at us. We didn't do anything. Why would you possibly think that was us? Well, there's not too many people that fit the description of a doctor looking for his eye on the ground with his black attorney. Columbia Law School. We need someone to help us to find the truth. My friend was killed because of something monstrous that he had seen. This is all turning out to be a lot larger than any of us. You're gonna have to take my lead getting out of this. I had to stab a guy. I had to hit a lady with a brick one time. What? It's a long story, but with you two, it'll be a cakewalk. These are dangerous times. You be careful. I'm about to do something that could cost me my life. The cuckoo is in the nest, and the cuckoo's about to be trapped. Cuckoo. This is one of the finest innovations from Zurich. It removes all pain. Guys like me, we have to turn to booze, the morphine, and that can lead to addiction. Oh, that's fast. Mm -hmm. That is advanced. <laughs> and those were scenes from Amsterdam, starring among a highly unusual assembled cast, actress Andrea Riceboro, who would seem to be competing against herself these days coming out in two films the same day in October, Amsterdam and To Leslie. Riseboro is our guest on the show, talking about both films, as well as being directed by Madonna in W.E. in 2011, as well as Simpson, the American subjected to a scandal after marriage to then-British king Edward VIII. Riseboro discusses David O. Russell's Amsterdam, based loosely on quite a buried history in this country, a looming fascism during the Great Depression and the plot of bankers back then in 1933 to overthrow FDR and install a right-wing government, in part owing to another buried history, the president's introduction of welfare policies deemed by the bankers to be establishing socialism in the U.S., but actually motivated by FDR to prevent a rising tide of mass uprising and revolution as a reaction to the starvation and misery of the Great Depression back then. More about that coming up, but first, some scenes from Riceboro's other film to Leslie, about U.S. poverty today, and one homeless woman and mother caught up in that downward spiral for her into alcoholism. But first, some scenes from to Leslie. Chasing the pavement. Things don't go the same way for any two people, and I don't think any less of you for having the problems you do. Been down this road, not you know what? It's my life. I might look stupid to you. You don't. Yeah, well, I ain't one for letting people get over on me. The town tries to avoid me like the plague, and my boy doesn't want to see me. He ain't never gonna speak to me again. Try to be good, yeah, try to be real. Y'all remember Leslie, don't you? Helen Raymond's little girl. You don't gotta worry about me because 
despite your best effort, I ain't going nowhere. Angels are falling down on me. Good Christian people raised you right. You ruined that sweet boy's life. And what did you do to stop me? So don't walk away, you can count. Tell me I'm good. On me. Hello and welcome to our show. Oh, thank you very much. How are you? Fine. And let me ask you. Okie doke. What were the challenges for you on the one hand playing an alcoholic and on the other hand as an English woman playing a Texan in the film to Leslie? Um, well, the, the answer to the first is quite vast. Um, uh, but it's hard to quantify challenge always. Do you know, do you know what I mean? Yeah. So the first, the answer to the first would be there's a, there's a, a certain level of apprehension mm. with which you enter into that headspace for such an extended period of time. Um, and Leslie's isolation from the world has led her to uh, really the depths of victimhood, um, but also her ferocious humour and mm. uh, her recklessness and her abandon and her, and her joyful nature and her playful nature um, affords her a lot of relationships that don't necessarily have intimacy but uh, affords her a lot of contact with, with people. So it's almost like she's surrounded, consistently surrounded by people, but deeply, deeply lonely. Mm. Uh, and those most close to her have to keep their distance. Yeah. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, playing a Texan, uh, obviously with all of my work, I do a lot of, uh, I, I, I work uh, very thoroughly um, and I'm an actor. So, you know, that's that's my job, really. Yeah. Now, you're actually going to be competing against yourself when you open in two films the very same day. Yes, the same day, on October 7th, to Leslie, and also Amsterdam. What can you say or not about Amsterdam, which has been described as involving someone, quote, who was killed because of something he had seen? It was an organization that wants to rule the world rule the world. And from the look of the preview, that would seem to be about Nazis and fascists, something that seems to continue to exist to this day, as we see now what's going on in Europe. And what can you say about that highly unusual cast of characters in Amsterdam, including Taylor Swift, Chris Rock, Robert De Niro, Mike Myers, and Christian Bale? I mean, it's, you know, really, really... Uh... Are we opening the same day? Yeah, yes, the same day. Oh, right, right, right. Forgive me, I have four films coming out at the minute, so it's difficult to keep all the dates in my head. Um, oh, okay, well, last, well, so I saw it last night for the first time in its entirety. Um, I've seen parts of it. And I didn't know what its you know, final incarnation was going to be, but, th but there it was last night, and it was a really, uh, really warm experience um such a hopeful film and um and unexpected and unusual and i was really very moved and how would you say your approach differs culturally when getting into character to play an american i live in america and um i'm not really part of the process of as much as I'm my own instrument because I because I'm an actor so yeah. unavoidably I, I am my own tool um I'm not much part of the process of of playing the characters that I'm that I'm interested in playing if that makes any sense mm. so the difference between the the spending time considering the difference between my psychology and the psychology of an American character would be a waste of time mm in the sense that 
Instead, I want to go directly to the psychology of an American character. My, the, a, a British, you know, British psychology doesn't factor into character. So, um, so that's the thing that I'm immersing myself in. And uh, you know, obviously, being British as 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 being from anywhere that's not the U.S. and then playing a character who who uh, was born and lives in the U.S. Um, or I should say, was born in the U.S. because I live in the U.S. Um, our perspective, of course, is other uh but it's a welcome challenge to uh step into the shoes of somebody who was born in the country in which i live mm. um and uh hugely satiating mm. you know as a performer yeah and how would you compare being directed by a man for amsterdam and also to leslie was say a woman, Madonna, directing you as Wallace Simpson in W.E. Uh, again, comparisons are a little difficult. <laughs> comparisons are a little difficult, especially as relates to, to gender. Okay, um, well, Michael was the, uh, so he sort of occupied that, that space for me. In a sense, he would, in my mind, or in my heart, or, you know, whatever, he was, he was the director. It wasn't to say that I was treating him like the director and not the director I was being directed by, but he he had the landscape of the whole piece mm. in his head at all times. Yeah. And was a great source of wisdom and uh, sort of, you know, my, my cornerstone into where we were in the story. And so um, he's uh, very generous with um, creatives of all types across the board um, above and below the, the line, uh, very respectful of how the mechanics uh, of filming, mm. but also incredibly intuitive, very sensitive and very, very smart. And so um, it was a really fantastic experience. And then working with Madonna was a, just a, one of the most special times of my life, really, in so many ways. As she's so prolific, mm. in so many ways, it was one of the most inspiring times that I had because, and, and it, it crept up on me in the sense that I hadn't realized that she was one of the first females that I'd been directed by. Mm. Um, it also made a movie with Sam Taylor Wood. Um, but I, I rarely had the, the opportunity to work with female, female directors. There was a real complicity. I know it sounds perhaps odd, objectively, to say that about somebody like Madonna, who is such a clearly such a, an icon, mm. um, and to most of the world seems untouchable almost because she's so iconic. Um, but she was meticulous and exacting and imaginative, and she very much like Michael, was the keeper of all knowledge in terms of uh, Wallace and Edward. So she had this, these vast tombs of books in her head that she'd devoured about the relationship between um, the King and Mrs. Simpson. Okay, thank you so much, Andrea, for calling into the show about To Leslie and Amsterdam, your coincidental double feature openings coming up. Oh, thank you very much. Lovely to speak to you. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. And to Leslie and Amsterdam are in release on October 7th. And coming up next on Arts Express, owing to quite a discrepancy between how film critics review movies and, as opposed to the audiences, a real psychologist analyzes mental illness in movies. I'm Dr. Ali Matu, clinical psychologist, and we're going to be looking at mental illness in movies. In New York, does it remind you? That's manipulative. I don't want to talk mm -hmm. about it. Are they coming back? The aliens? Maybe. Can you stop? So that's kind of a pretty good example of trauma right there. Does this subject make, make you edgy? Yeah, a little bit. Do Can I just catch my breath for a second? Now he's starting to feel some panic. He's been triggered. Like to breathe into? <laughs> Do, do, do you have this is a really good example of how 
everyday situations can trigger someone and the other person might not even know that they're triggering someone's trauma. Remember when I said to stop doing that? I'm sorry, you're gonna freak me out. I really love Marvel movies and Iron Man 3 is one of my favorites because it's such a good representation of anxiety. Here we see Tony experiencing panic. Hyperventilation is a pretty core symptom of panic. We see Tony Stark avoiding a lot of situations that are difficult for him, and that's a big hallmark of anxiety. It's a good example of trauma because trauma happens when fundamental belief you have has been challenged in some way. He's always been able to engineer his way out of danger, and this is the first time he couldn't. In the movie, his anxiety just sort of seems to resolve itself, and we don't really see how it's resolved itself, but I like what they show us in terms of the examples of anxiety and trauma there. Okay, I haven't seen Split, but I really want to see it. With regard to Jahamana's defeat and Muhammad of Gore's conquest between 1192 and 1200, I would liken it to Muhammad's Raisin ultimatum that so this is an looks like another disassociative identity disorder. It's kind of interesting idea is like vlogging as your different personalities to yourself. Choke. I hate my insulin shots. No one else around here has to take them. Why do I have to die? So accurate representation, different tone of voice, different presentation, different way of talking, different way of sitting. Huh? How do you explain I'm the only one that needs these, you Okay, I have no idea what's about to happen, but... It's kind of interesting. What's unusual about this example is his different personalities seem to be talking to each other. Some personalities can interact with each other, but to this level of communication and coordination, probably not. And disassociative identity disorder is also very controversial. Some people think it's a representation of schizophrenia, and that is a big myth. The confusion comes from the word schizophrenia. Schizophrenia means split mind, and that refers to the split between what's really happening and what someone's experiencing in their mind with hallucinations. He has kidnapped these other, um, women. It's an M. Night Shyamalan film. In this kind of stuff, you suspend your disbelief a little bit more, but this is where a lot of people get ideas about mental illness. I don't think a lot of people take it too seriously, but it is uh, perpetuating some myths. Yeah, I haven't seen Beautiful Mind in many years, but I remember really liking it. Oh my gosh. This is like, Really sad to watch now. Charles was watching, he was okay. So he's experiencing a visual hallucination. He's seeing something that isn't really there. And it's much more common to have auditory hallucinations, to hear things, but some people do experience visual hallucinations. A big part of schizophrenia is confusion and, and fear and not quite understanding what's happening, and I think we're seeing a good example of that. So one of the things about schizophrenia is learning how to identify your symptoms and learning what is an hallucination and what's actually real. John Nash in the scene realizes that one of his hallucinations never ages. That could be an effective form of coping for him. I've heard other people say, if my dog is not reacting to something, then I know that's my illness. That's a pretty realistic way to cope with it. One of my only issues with A Beautiful Mind is at the end there is sort of this message that you can sort of outthink schizophrenia and that isn't, eh, it's not the most realistic. What's really great about A Beautiful Mind is it shows someone who has schizophrenia who is not violent and that's a big stereotype about schizophrenia. Most people who have mental illness are not violent. They're much more likely to be the victims of violence than they are someone who might um, be violent themselves. Sally Dibbs, Dibbs Sally. A lot of people who have autism do see visual patterns to a much higher degree than people who don't have autism. But they also really struggle with social interaction. You memorize the whole book? No. 
You start from the beginning? Yeah. How far did you get? G. G. I think Tom Cruise's character is a good representation of how hard it can be for people who don't have autism to understand it. Maple syrup is supposed to be on the table before the pancakes. We haven't ordered yet, Ray. Of course, when they bring the maple syrup after the pancakes. So needing things to be a certain way and then getting really emotionally overwhelmed when they're not like that, that happens a lot with autism. No toothpicks, I'm definitely, definitely not gonna. I like that representation. It does a good job of showing the differences in how someone who has autism versus someone who doesn't have autism, how they see the world, and also the challenges of working together and understanding each other. The only thing I don't like about this representation, it does show more of a narrow view of the functioning of someone who has autism. Now we know it's, it's a spectrum, and people are all over on that spectrum. But that's more just representative of when this movie was made. Other than that, I think it shows those main features of autism, the focus on visual patterns, on logic, a little bit of rigidity, and difficulty with social interactions. It shows those really well. I haven't seen this in a long time, but I remember liking its representation. It's the middle of the night, so he's clearly having a hard time falling asleep, which sleep problems are a big part of bipolar disorder. It's after three o'clock, what are you doing? I looked in here, but this is all and he's focused on, on something, trying to solve a problem. We call that goal-directed activity, which is much more common when people might be experiencing manic symptoms. This is also a great example of how bipolar can impact families. Are you going to my study? Feels to me like you wanna He's a bit more irritable, more frustrated, more upset. That can also really happen when someone is more manic. Bipolar is all about moving fast or moving slow. We're definitely seeing that fast part right here. This is a really quick escalation of stuff, but this kind of sequence of events can happen with bipolar disorder when someone is manic. It wouldn't happen this quickly, but you know, it's a movie. Let the whole neighborhood wake up, I don't- That was pretty good. Very quick escalation. It wouldn't happen that quickly, but it does a good job of showing us the experience of being manic. We also see a lot of that emotional sensitivity, intensity of the emotions. One of the biggest triggers for bipolar disorder, if you're not sleeping as much as you used to, or if you have trouble falling asleep, it can have a huge impact on your mood. I love Sherlock. I think from now on we'll downgrade you to casual acquaintance, no more than three planned social encounters a year, and always in John's presence. I have your contact details, I will be monitoring. They're right about you. You're a bloody psychopath. High-functioning sociopath, with your number. <laughs> that is such a good line. I love that, because that speaks to this difference between sociopaths and uh, psychopaths. There is a difference in, in how we use those terms. Both categories, they might break rules or break the law. The difference with a sociopath is they can form connections with other people. Sherlock definitely has a relationship with Watson. He definitely cares about him, so he does have relationships. He doesn't just simply manipulate people. The thing that's a little bit less realistic is people who are sociopaths, they tend to be more reactive more impulsive, more emotional than psychopaths who are more cold-blooded, more tempered, more calculating. This Sherlock, I think he's a bit more on the autism spectrum. He sees patterns, doesn't interact with people the same way that other people do. He's not impulsive like we would think of many sociopaths. I remember being so blown away by this movie. But I made him smarter, sharper. So we're seeing a lot of examples of how she's manipulated other people. There's a callousness, a lack of emotion there. We were happy pretending to be other people. We were the happiest couple we knew. That lack of emotion, lack of empathy, ability to manipulate other people to get what you want. This is very characteristic of antisocial personality disorder, especially breaking the law, murdering people. Bouncier, cool girl. This is really intense. You think I'd let him destroy me and end up happier than ever? So that was really uh, just hearing her, I felt. 
Uh, I felt like goosebumps. It just felt so cold, so calculated. I would be very nervous around someone like that. It's a pretty good example of antisocial personality disorder. That's the technical clinical term that we use. It's not the term most people use. The terms that come up are sociopath and psychopath. This is actually an example of someone who is a psychopath. Being very cold-blooded, being able to manipulate other individuals, not forming strong attachments unless it's to get what you want. That type of manipulation, that's much more associated with what people call psychopath. They can work on Wall Street and be really good scientists. Detachment from other people actually helps them to do their job. They don't have to be killers. Most of the stories that we see are about murderers and that's not, that's not realistic. What's so cool about movies is they can make it easier for us to have conversations about mental illness. Mental illness is just one part of, of who we are, it's one part of our identity, but it's not the whole story. And now I need to go get a hug because I feel very scared. That was a scary movie to end on. And thank you BuzzFeed for that presentation. And now on Arts Express. The cost of healthcare in the United States is simply becoming unaffordable. Today what we see is that everyone but the 1% is at risk of financial disaster from even a relatively minor healthcare encounter. Politicians, they're always saying bad pharma, bad insurers, bad device makers but no one goes after the hospitals. And yet, they are the biggest source of price increases in the last decade. They found tumors in his liver and in his colon. I started to have trouble with pain in my face and my left ear. I was diagnosed with a very rare cancer. I've had breast cancer twice, have lung cancer twice. Well, they found another spot on my lung. I don't wanna say on my deathbed, Crap, I'm dying because they wouldn't let me see the doctor. Hi, this is Jack Shalom. I'm talking today about a new film documentary, Inhospitable, by director Sandra Alvarez, where she shows that hospitals are big business, and even when dubbed nonprofit, the money flows in a way that's not about prioritizing patient care or patient finances. Well, you may know that medical bankruptcy is the number one cause of family bankruptcy in the U.S., but what's not as well known is that the major factor driving up the cost of healthcare in the U.S. is the growing phenomenon of hospital mergers. More than the cost of pharmaceuticals or health insurance, the increase in costs due to hospital mergers has been the biggest factor of them all in the incredible inflating medical cost machine. Well, like any good suspense story, Inhospitable has a ticking time bomb that drives its actions. In this case, the bomb that's about to explode is a five-year agreement between two hospital giants that is about to expire. The background is a bit complex, so bear with me, hang on with me for a bit. Inhospitable takes place mainly in Pittsburgh, where two major hospital networks dominate the healthcare landscape. You see, as the steel factories left Pittsburgh, the nonprofit University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, known as UPMC, started buying up many of the smaller hospitals in the city, including the specialty hospitals. And as a result, they had most of the medical specialists in the area working for them. UPMC also decided to run a company that provides health insurance to its own workers and to the general public, which, as you might guess, steers the insured to its own hospitals. Now, UPMC's competitor, Highmark Incorporated, also a nonprofit hospital network, did the same thing, creating its own insurance. So the problem is that while Highmark's hospitals generally accepted patients from both Highmark Insurance and UPMC Insurance, UPMC 
did not wish to reciprocate. They did not want to accept Highmark's insurance at their hospitals. So if you had Highmark insurance, which was generally a lot less expensive than UPMC's, then you were stuck with no access to UPMC facilities or doctors. And as I said before, most of the highly specialized doctors worked at facilities controlled by UPMC. Well, the state of Pennsylvania recognized in 2014 that this was going to be a problem. So they enforced a five-year compromise that said that both hospital networks had to accept the insurance of the other. And so it was for five years. Problem was that as the five years was coming to an end, no one knew what was going to happen. UPMC was vociferously against continuing the compromise in any way. And as the five-year deadline ticked closer, patients began to panic. Those with high mark insurance especially were up against the wall. Patients who had been seeing their specialists for years were suddenly confronted with the fear that they may no longer have access to their doctors, and they had to find a way to get a new medical team of specialists. Specialists that were not necessarily available at Highmark's Pittsburgh hospitals. The director of Inhospitable, Sandra Alvarez, personalizes the story by focusing on one lovely married couple caught in this catch-22 medical insurance nightmare. So Maurice Ornett married 17 years to his wife Vicky, ironically a nurse herself, has stage four metastatic cancer of the colon. And they know that with their high mark insurance, they might be cut off soon from their UPMC specialists. So with Maurice needing to have chemotherapy and constant testing, they scramble to find a new hospital facility to meet his needs. And, and almost unbelievably, the only high mark in-network hospital with the specialists they need is in Atlanta. So they have to fly off to Atlanta back and forth from Pittsburgh for them to get the care that Maurice needs. Well, of course, it's absolutely heartbreaking to see them try to handle all the logistics of everyday life and the toll that the plane trips to Atlanta from Pittsburgh themselves take. But wife and nurse Vicki is not one to give up easily, and she and other patients are urged on by the Pennsylvania Health Action Network to lobby legislators, enlist journalists, and ultimately break into the UPMC Board of Directors meeting to shame the hospital directors. Well, I won't give away the ending of the film, but there are a whole lot of Pittsburgh residents that didn't like what was going on. Alvarez does a good job in giving voice to the patients, and she certainly gives us a villain taboo, the greedy CEO of UPMC, Jeffrey Romoff. Well, Romoff is a comic book villain of almost Jeff Bezos proportions. He assures his board of directors unapologetically that UPMC will be opportunistic no matter how challenging the situation is. You see, while UPMC is classified as a nonprofit hospital, there are plenty of people making big money at UPMC, not the least of whom is Romoff himself, whose salary is $6 million a year for a nonprofit. And unless you think this is an aberration, the CEO of nonprofit Mount Sinai Hospital here in New York City makes a cool $12.5 million a year. And that's just the CEO. Think of all the directors and layers of administrators. Well, the truth is that the nonprofit hospitals make lots of profit each year. They just can't distribute it to shareholders. So what do they do with it all? Well, after they give it to themselves, they plow it back into real estate. They buy up land and property and build buildings and equip them with machines that they don't need and the money is spread around. One consequence of this real estate buy-up is that the real estate is converted from commercial property to nonprofit property. That is from taxable property to non-taxable property. 
So the tax base of the city becomes further eroded and social services take a further decline. The hospital PR flax claim that all these mergers and consolidations help to drive down their operating costs with efficiencies of scale. What they don't say is that those efficiencies are not passed on to the consumers. In fact, studies have shown that after hospital mergers, the hospital prices go up from 20% to a whopping 65%. So the increased revenue is not going back to patients, but to more executive compensation and further property acquisition. And the workers at the hospitals are getting screwed too. As competition lessens, the workers have less leverage to go to better paying jobs nearby. And ironically, many of the UPMC workers are victims of medical debt themselves. Their UPMC insurance reimbursement, set by the hospital, doesn't reimburse enough to pay sick workers the price of their own hospital care. Well, there's a lot to admire in this documentary, especially the interviews and footage of militant people with severe illnesses and disabilities fighting to survive, refusing to be quiet about what's happening. And the film certainly does not shy away from the ugly underside of the so-called nonprofit healthcare corporations. But there's also an element in the room that is so large and so unremarked on in this film that I had to wonder, what is going on here? Nowhere, not once in the whole of the film, discussing a broken medical and insurance system, is the S-word spoken. And by S-word, I mean socialized medicine or even the other S-word, single-payer government insurance. Well, the film has several talking heads, and while several of them remark on the dangers of a healthcare sector monopoly, not one considers a government public insurance plan like Medicare for All. And I have to believe that the omission was deliberate. I noticed that one of the talking heads in the film, Emily G., was identified as a vice president for health policy at the Center for American Progress. So I looked up that foundation and found out exactly what I had suspected. While the Center for American Progress bills themselves as nonpartisan, in 2017, the center opposed Bernie Sanders' single-payer health plan. And not surprisingly, the Center for American Progress gets funding from the healthcare insurance industry, which would be eliminated under a Sanders plan. And while supposedly nonpartisan, the Center has a separate political action committee that was headed by Democratic Party bigwig Neera Tandon, a Joe Biden and Hillary Clinton stalwart. And let, let's not forget that it was Joe Biden who stated that if ever Medicare for All was passed by Congress, as president, he would veto it. So, that explained a lot to me. Whatever the director's personal politics was, that film was not going to talk about any radical change in how healthcare is done in the United States. I'm not saying not to see that film. It's really quite good and informative for what it is. And you'll meet some wonderful people, but be aware of its bias. I think people tend to be more circumspect about a book's possible bias because you can look up an author. But when we watch documentary films, our critical faculties, at least my critical faculties, sometimes slip under the radar and I unconsciously feel like film documentaries are more objective. Taint so, McGee. In a collaborative effort like documentary filmmaking, with its apparently neutral stance, it's harder to track the source of its point of view, but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. I've been talking about the film Inhospitable, directed by Sandra Alvarez. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller.
And we'll go out now on Arts Express with Bro on the Art World Beat, the Documenta Festival in Kassel, Germany, collectivizing and yanking art out of its commodified prison. Arts Express Paris correspondent Professor Dennis Bro is on the case. This is Bro on the Art World Beat, Breaking Glass. Today's episode, Collectivizing and Yanking Art Out of Its Commodified Prison, the Lumbung Documenta. This two-part series will consider the impact of a monumental event in the art world, the turning over of the every five-year art festival Documenta in Kassel, Germany, to a series of collectives under the organizational framework of the Indonesian group Rungrupa, the first such direction of a major art festival in the West by a developing world group, an Asian and Muslim at that. Rungrupa and the 50 participants, mostly collectives, proceeded to rethink and refashion in an activist mode the foundational concept of not only how the art object is presented, the place of art in the developing world and in the West, and finally, how art is, rather than simply being consumed, capable of critiquing the productivist development of the West and opposing new ways of being and new solutions. For daring this whole-scale reimagining, the project has been roundly criticized and most often under the rubric of anti-Semitism, anti-Zionism, and criticism of the policies of the Israeli state. This first layout the critique document opposes, and the second will consider the attack on it, as well as examining a more art world-friendly but still cantankerous and challenging simultaneous presentation a few hours away in Berlin, the Berlin Biennale. Both have challenged and in ways tried to upend preconceived perceptions both in the art world and in the world at large. Let's start with the radical slogan of this year's art festival in Kessel. We are not in Documenta 15, we are in Lumbung 1. In Indonesia, Lumbung is a rice barn where the surplus harvest is stored to benefit the community in time of need. Rangrupa defines Lumbung as extended to this festival and more importantly to the world at large as a practice of collectivizing the fruits of the system of production for the benefits of all. The concept is a developing world answer to the private and extractive schemes of the West which have menaced and exploited the rest of the world for so long. In the art world, the application of Lumbung means not only throwing the festival open to collective labor, but also viewing art not primarily as commodity and as part of a commodity exchange, but rather making primary the practice of art as a means of opening up group participation and education. Thus, art is not individually consumed, but rather collectively digested as an opening to changing the world. As such, this definition also challenges, as Ongrupa says, the old system of state funding and our free market art systems. Thus, for example, another Indonesian collective, Taring Pati, uses cardboard cutouts in street demonstrations and murals to indict the killing behind the global foundation of Indonesia's island paradise, Bali, financed by Western capital and built on the graves of the dead. These artworks then resist being torn from their function in real lives in their social political context and thus no longer pursuing mere individual expression, no longer needing to be exhibited in standalone objects or sold to individual collectors and hegemonic state-funded museums. Lumbung Calling, another slogan of the festival, this one adopted from the Clash's apocalyptic fable, London Calling, here converted into a plea for humanity to avert the apocalypse, in practice has meant work that, unlike much of the objects in the Berlin Biennale, does not obscure the issue by hiding behind the patina of making vague statements through a highly conceptual veil of abstraction. Daring to confront these issues directly, for bloodying itself with a confrontation of the actual results of these centuries of Western colonialism, the first critique that this version of Documenta faced by Western critics was that this was not art. The differences were striking between the Biennale, with its more traditional mode of the individuals passively consuming individual works and measuring their comprehension against the artist's concealed intent, and Documenta, with its group of students and mostly young people engaging with and working out through various spaces provided by the festival, the ways in which work spurred discussion and involved participants, turning them from commodified consumers into activists, together groping for means of change. To cite, too, the battle in Canada for its place as leading mineral miner versus the claims of those on the land whose life will be upended, and Biden's environmental bill, which opens Alaska and the Gulf of Mexico up to oil drilling. At the festival, a Times Square-like continual ticker above the building kept pacing out the money the Australian government owes First Nations groups from 1901 to the present, with the figure reaching into the trillions and still counting. Instead of simply locating themselves in the two main halls, as other iterations of the festival have done, Documenta's collectives have also expanded out into the city in what one group calls the ecosystem, 
The institution itself, begun in 1955, was designed as an antidote and mea culpa for the place of its site Kessel as a primary manufacturer of the armaments which fueled the Nazi war machine. As such, Documenta, the most political of all art festivals, has always taken as its mission to highlight this grievous moment in the city's past. This trend broadens in this latest iteration as the Lumbung Documenta expands or occupies not only various sites in the city, but also expands its critique to encompass the post-war development of what became known as the city of the car, with the automobile replacing weapons manufacturing in the 50s economic miracle, a situation globally that has accounted for numerous deaths in densely populated urban areas because of diesel pollution. Thus, the headquarters of the clothing company CNA, an unadorned and monotonous facade typical of post-war reconstruction, is illuminated with a tarring potty banner, ablaze with color and featuring a steadfast Karl Marx in the upper corner, looking askance at the company, which profited under the Nazi regime, seizing Jewish assets and employing forced labor, which has also been accused in the global era equally of employing sweatshop labor from the developing world plaza or plots near the center is covered underfoot with headlines from Romanian Dan Persovici's horizontal newspaper, with one containing the slogan in capital letters W-A-R and in between T-E, so it says war on water, proclaiming the water wars to come. Another ominously announcing that I am so grateful to be in the last documenta. And a third picturing a word balloon from an ocean liner whose cheery passengers address those below being submerged in a raft with the comforting words, we are all in this together. Pershovici's project, as does much of the work here, democratizes the state art world convention of conceptualism, whose meanings are obscure and which led not to a critique of art world materiality, but only to a new form of commodification, this time focusing on the word as syllable object. What might have been a plaza, a public place for gathering at the corner of two streets in the center of Castle, because of the dominance of the automobile and 50 city planning, which with its concentration on freeways devastated whole communities in, for example, Boyle Heights in Los Angeles and in Houston, became simply a traffic circle with pedestrians directed underground. Ungrupa turned the underground space over to the Black Quantum Futurism Collective from Philadelphia, whose photo montages with slogans over a slave ship read, Black people navigate Western timelines as our ancestors did the stars, and dissolve the arrow of progress, as the Black Futurist Collective called attention to the global devastation this progress caused. It must be mentioned also that with the Ukraine war now being the occasion for Germany and Japan to rearm, Castle is again becoming a site not only of the manufacture of cars, but also of weapons building for a new German war machine. What could possibly go wrong? The extension out into the city also featured multiple works in the manufacturing district of Bettenhausen, generally ignored in previous documentas. The Hallenbad Ost, formerly a workers' swimming facility, was taken over by Taring Potty, the most radical group in the festival. That Taring Potty should install itself in a workers' facility is fitting since the group from Jokjokarta aligns itself with working-class concerns. As the collective traces its origins to its involvement in protests and street demonstrations at the moment where the 1997-98 Asian financial crisis brought down the longtime U.S.-supported dictator Suharto. The name itself means fangs of rice, suggesting the grain can support a community, but also that it can prick opponents. The lawn of the Hollandbad Ost, part of an interior and exterior display of over 100 objects from the group's 22 years of active protest, was filled with cardboard cutout puppets used in street demonstrations called Weiyang Kardus, which take the more elite form of Indonesian puppet theater and make it available for expressing people's political concerns. One had a Suharto figure clutching money bags while hovering over a ballot box and swaying election. A gorgeous multitude of murals, often visually citing the Mexican muralist Diego Rivera and David Alfaro Saqueros, as a woman in the center of one mural bursts her chains, were accompanied also by another transposing Bosch's vision of hell into a modern history of the diabolical world of Indonesia's exploitation by successively the Dutch, the Japanese, and Suharto and the global money backing him. That moment was laid out in a series of murals about the murder of thousands on the island of Bali in 1965 and 66, and the subsequent decision, even as the killings of the islands left and any who held an association with them continued, to build Bali into a global pleasure dome, with money supplied by the World Bank, the French Tourism Board, and the UN Development Program. 
The construction was done, Taring Potty relates, with no input from those on the island and with hotels possibly built over the mass graves, which concealed this largest massacre in the country's history, worse than the Dutch or the Japanese. One black and white mural accompanying this story features an army officer prominently leading the killing below him. Countering this is a stunning full-color mural of an Indonesian princess with a tiger striding majestically across a busy modern intersection. In the background are billboards proposing skin care and other Western capitalist beauty projects, which the commanding natural beauty of the princess negates. Her almost mystical presence also recalls the Indonesian folklore and its use in sustaining the country against its history of incursions, outlined, for example, in Eka Kurinawan's novel Beauty is a Wound. Finally, a more traditional art world presentation was to be found in Castle Sepulchral Museum, containing medieval burial objects, in an exhibition about myth by Spanish artist Eric Beltran. A wall of various mystical representations is introduced by standard late postmodern art world gobbledygook, claiming that myths only produce vacant meaning, are unknowable and equal, and so that's why I try to understand them. The one saving grace of a juxtaposition of images which never exceed their place is a pretentious collage is that of Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg with a slightly oversized nose as Pinocchio, calling attention to the lies he tells at every congressional hearing to out with those who would regulate his enterprise. Documenta 15, the Lumbung Documenta, opens the way for a developing world conception of art that directly embraces the current world crisis and that challenges and will continue to challenge Western traditions and institutions. The attack by those institutions is the subject of the second part of this series. And this is Bro on the Art World Beat, Breaking Glass. Thank you, Dennis Bro. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.